perfectionism is to hide our sense of inadequacy. People think perfect is a good thing, but it's not. Perfect means without a flaw, without an error, without a mistake. So when we live our lives with a mindset and a behavior patterns that is about striving for things to be perfect, we're talking about trying to be 100% at all times at everything you do, which is absolutely unattainable. And I obviously am here to tell people that there are other ways to feel worthy and enough. That was Dr. Menage, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Mentally Flexible. My guest today is Dr. Menage Boderian. Dr. Menage is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in California. While Dr. Menage has experience in a number of different clinical areas, she has made perfectionism a main focus of her work. Dr. Menage has a beautiful way of using her own life experience to inform her work as a psychologist. In this episode, we explore Dr. Menage's move to America from Turkey as a teenager, how this led to self-stories of inadequacy and shifted her family dynamics. We then spend some time on perfectionism and explore how it impacts relationships and accomplishing goals, and we discuss how perfectionism overlaps with things like OCD and imposter syndrome. Dr. Menage has a course on perfectionism that we touch on at the end of this episode. If you're interested in learning more about that, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. And thank you all for being here and listening to the show. It means a lot to me. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want some bonus content or would like to connect, shoot me a follow on Instagram at Mentally Flexible. All right, well... Thank you all again for being here, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Menage. Thanks again for doing this. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Same here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I, I recently listened to your interview on the Mental Illness Happy Hour in preparation for this, and that was a great conversation you had with Paul. Oh, good, good. I was very nervous, I have to admit, but I'm, uh, and I have a tendency, I can't listen to myself, uh, mm. any of the recordings, but it was such a pleasure talking with him. Such a, such a great guy. Oh, he's awesome, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of fun because he lives locally, so I, I was able to drive to him, like a 30-minute drive, and then we were able to meet in person. It was really fun. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I got to interview him for this podcast, so I love him. Yes, yes. I listened to your with Kimberly, who's a colleague of mine. Um, we live pretty close to. Um, so it's it's you you have great, great conversations. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well thank you. Yeah, I'm yeah. really happy you're here. When I was listening to the conversation you had with Paul, 
I was really interested in your in you talking about your transition coming from Turkey to America, I think right be- before you turned 15. Could you share just a little bit more about that? Yes, yes. I moved to the States with my family in August of, I'm going to give my age away, but 1998. So I was two weeks before I was going to turn 15. And my goodness, that gave me and my therapist a lot to talk about mm. <laughs> years later, because you don't realize, I think at the moment, what, uh, you know, how sensitive that age is. And I, and I am very thankful and very grateful and aware of my transition. I know that there are so many people who have to immigrate and sometimes they leave because there's political oppression from the country they're coming from, or there is some sort of like a threat that they feel like their li- livelihood is, 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 is being jeopardized. And I know that I was very fortunate that that was not my case. I have very, you know, I have many family members who still live in my home country, but knowing my gratitude doesn't take away the 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 impact that experience had on me in terms of me feeling like you know the the, the truth is me feeling like not good enough like you know you you don't speak the right way you don't understand the words right away you don't understand the norms and the culture and especially as a 15 year old right the whole world is like your social life you know how the peers and your classmates click and get along and those eye contacts those body movements i was not getting any of them for for a very long time mm-hmm. and and so it causes a lot of this feeling of you know feeling less than feeling behind um <clears throat> i shared this actually in one of the things i wrote uh which is a conversation i had with my therapist where i told her I, the way i described it to her is i felt like i was like there was this marathon and I think I use that because it's just life feels like sometimes like a marathon you're in this journey and you know you know you're moving forward and it really felt like the race started and for some reason I didn't hear it go off and everybody's running and all I'm doing is trying to catch up it felt like that for many years and only a few years after being here 15 you know so I started college when I was 18 so I wasn't here that long by the time I started college so that feeling like you're not getting getting things you're not you know you're not you're not catching up you're not just fitting in continued for for many many more years because now I had the pressure of college experience right I had the pressure of you know fitting in in college and making friends in college or figuring out what I wanted to do in terms of my major so it really felt for a very long time uh, that sense of like being behind and you're always catching up and you're just never never, never arriving at a place where you feel like you, you, you did it, you done it. And that's when a lot of my perfectionism absolutely got triggered and activated. And, and there's so many different life events. There's, um, obviously some family dynamics, cultural pressure. You know, I grew up from, from a very traditional culture where there's all these, you know, gender roles. Um, there's all these like girls must behave, you know, and girls, you know, be a good student um, respect your teachers and don't misbehave. And so there's a lot of rule following that was implemented to me. And I think it was intended to keep, you know, children behaving well. It wasn't like malicious or abusive, but I also grew up with some of those things. So there's a lot of layers to my perfectionism. Um, but I would say that life event was a big one. Mm. And if I'm hearing you correctly here and from your conversation with Paul, 
that sense of being behind in the marathon, it seemed to be mostly centered around social dynamics, right? Rather than in like with academics or language barriers, it was mostly just how you felt like you were integrated socially. It definitely was. I think that, you know, socially makes the most, uh, gets the most attention. Cause again, when you're 15, you're 18, it's all about like, you know, friends and dating and social relationships. But what's interesting about feeling like you don't belong here. Um, the story I told Paul, if I may share here as well, <laughs> how I got into college. So I went to UC San Diego <clears throat> and uh, at the time, you know, it's like spring, you're getting all your applications. And what I was told that when you get your acceptance letter, it arrives by like eight by 11, you know, envelope, large envelope. And, uh, and I got accepted to another school, a, a, a good school. And then I'm waiting. And from San Diego, you see San Diego, I got a, a, a letter size envelope. So that meant that it was a rejection letter. So I walk into my house and I see I'm holding it in my hand and I'm, you know, disappointed, not really excited at that point. And I already got into a good school, so I wasn't like heartbroken or panicking, but I'm holding the letter and then I open it and it was an acceptance letter. And it was, it was kind of like a cute, it was a brochure in there and it sounds so crazy, but I think for a year or more, I held on to this belief that I was their second best. So that's how they think about not fitting in that kind of like, drags along is that not like can I make friends am I cool enough do I speak the right way it's also like am I smart enough for this position am I smart enough to get into this college so I do also think our perfectionism questions our sense of worth and confidence not just in social settings but in academia as well so when I got into college I wasn't walking in there with my shoulders back and like oh yeah I belong here it was more like Oh, well, I got the envelope and it came a couple of weeks after everybody else. So I must have been, Oh, here's another story. I told myself, <laughs> this is, this is, this is a lot of vulnerability for me. But another story I told myself was they picked me because they needed an immigrant student enrolled in their, in their pool of students. So the story I told myself was, oh, they must have needed a Middle Eastern student in there. So there it goes. There, I feel that blank. Like it wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because maybe I did really good for being here for three years. My math SAT was really high, which is again another story I told myself is numbers are universal and no wonder I did really good. And don't ask me for my English SAT. It's embarrassingly low. So that's the story you tell yourself when you are thinking that you're done, you just don't belong here is that there's always an excuse to why that worked out for you. It's not because you deserved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how, how much our minds try to make meaning out of things and cultivate stories to reinforce certain beliefs that we have about ourselves in the world. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of confirmation bias, a lot of, you know, picking and choosing, um, proofs and evidences that kind of keeps eating at you. Mm. When did you first start to feel connected socially to people in America? Well, that's a good question. I, it, I can share one thing I was taught um, many years later as I was getting into my profession as a therapist. I was attending an event and there was a information share that I guess there's some 
model or some research being done that when you immigrate and when you are, you know, acculturating, that socially there is an increased meaning like you socially don't feel you fit in and then within three years it improves, but psychologically it actually declines. So you notice that maybe like there's a honeymoon stage where you feel all like hyped up about it. And then within that three years, psychologically, you feel that sense of like confusion and sense of uh, being torn, being bicultural and um, not knowing what your version of who you are versus socially. It's been three years. You know how to drive, you know where to go to get your favorite coffee. So I know that there are some numbers out there about like three years. Um, I, I, but for me, I have to say it was more than that because like I mentioned after three years of being in the States, I went to college and I still felt the trigger of starting college. So I would say maybe like five, six years. Yeah. What were the, what were the biggest cultural differences from life in Turkey to life in California that you had to kind of grapple with? It's interesting because now I have noticed to celebrate the similarities and that mm-hmm. might be me being here, what, 23 years now. So I celebrate a lot of the differences, but I think there were more social life as peers, you know, in terms of dating, in terms of social gatherings that were different. And I think there were more expectation to be independent. I think that um, here there were more um, expectations to, uh, like people learn how to drive here when they're 16 and where I come from, that's, that's not the norm. You know, we don't talk, we don't think about driving until we're in our twenties because there's a lot more to it economically. It's not that easy to buy a car, purchase a car and things like that. And it's more like New York where people take a lot of subways too. So a lot of people don't feel the need to, um, drive. So that's another thing that I, I found a difficulty uh, with, that there was more independence. Like, oh, you, you know, you don't know how to drive. Um, so I, uh, and, and be more independent, like being more comfortable with certain things like um, dating and going to parties and things of that sort. I think there was a lot more independence and maybe I felt too shy because I was so new to all of it too. That's mm. the other thing that I felt too shy to catch up and join some of the social norms that everybody was so ready to take part by the time they turned 17 or by the time they go to college, they were all ready for it because they grew up around those, you know, like what you do when you go to college, living in dorms. To me, yes, I was excited, but a part of me also felt too, felt, felt like I wasn't adjusting yet. So I was homesick a lot more, I think, than maybe other people. Yeah. It sounds like, kind of going with that uh, marathon metaphor that in Turkey, maybe that expectation to get that more independent life would have been pushed out many more years. And this was sort of expedited for you. Very true. Yes. Yes. And it's expedited in a sense to also like you're a new country. So it's also one of those things where you want to go back into your comfort zone a lot more. You don't Mm. feel ready to venture out because this is enough venturing out for me. I'm in a new country. I'm in a new city. I'm speaking a new language. This is enough venturing out for me. Obviously, we're still going through our family dynamics where it's something I, I, I have shared openly about how, like most immigrant children, you become your parents' translator. 
So I, mm. I also had to deal with some of those family, private family dynamics that I wasn't ready to like learn how to drive and, and feel comfortable uh, being in social settings and things like that. Like it also makes you want to go back into your shell more. So mm. I think that really, again, crashed because I saw all my peers ready to be free, get out of the parents' house. And I'm like, no, no, I want to go under my blanket. Uh-huh. I want to I stay home for a little longer. The, the outside world looks very intimidating right now. Wow. Wow. That is such an interesting dynamic shift of having your parents suddenly have to rely on you for, for communication. It really is. I mean, I remember, and I learned English from since fourth grade in Turkey. So my English was good enough. And I remember having those parent-teacher conferences and sitting between my teacher and my mom and translating things they said about me and things they said about my brother, because I have, I have a, a brother who's one year older than me. So, and, and he, 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 he struggled at school. He, he, school was never his favorite thing. So sometimes I would sit there and translate things that, you know, awkward to, uh-huh. to have to say about your sibling and, and, you know, like healthy thing would be that you don't know about these things. Obviously every, I think everybody knows how their siblings are doing at school. Um, unless you are 10 years apart, but being a translator was, was very difficult, awkward. And I, and I'm again, looking back, I have no doubt that it, caused so much stress on everybody. I'm sure that didn't help my parents feel, you know, like they're some of the, I'm sure they feel like they lost some of their parental role as the authority figure when they needed me to speak for them in the bank, speak mm-hmm. for them sometimes at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's something we don't really take into consideration when people immigrate and there's children that have, that speak more fluently than parents and, how that shifts the dynamics of the relationship. I also think children adopt a bit faster sometimes. Again, I know there's so many different versions of this, but <clears throat> for some, you the child may adopt faster because they go to school right away and they, they don't have a choice. You know, they have to make friends at school. So you may notice in, in a year or two, they now start speaking better than their parents. Mm. So eventually... For most people, you start to speak better than your parents. Not maybe like me, right off the bat, I was speaking better than my parents because I was an adolescent or soon to be 18. Even if you came here when you were 7 or 8, by the time you're 10 or 12, English becomes, you know, so you, you, you become very fluent in it and you may find yourself in a family situation where you're speaking better than your parent, even though you guys been here for many, many years. And that's when you still take on that role. Yeah. Of taking care of the family, taking care of the family's paperwork and things of that sort. Yeah. And I'm sure it's even greater than just the actual verbal language, but it's the understanding of body language. And uh, if there's eye contact differences and that whole greater milieu of communication that um, you have to adjust to as well. Yes. So if I may tell you a small funny story, again, this is, this might be so culturally relevant, but so I remember this must have been like second year we we're here, not like the second day, but I watched my parents uh, have a little bit of this uh, private conversation. This is 20 years ago, so it doesn't have to be private anymore. And a, a friend of their friend invited them to, to dinner and they said, oh, let's meet at this restaurant. And so they invited them to a restaurant and I think we were all invited as a family of four. And I remember coming home and my parents, I watched them again, not fighting, but they kind of like 
wondering why they weren't invited to their friend's fat house and how rude it was to be invited to, not rude, I just how impersonal it was to be invited to a restaurant. So wow. my parents were like, why did they invite it to, the, to, to their house? Because again, from a Middle Eastern culture, and I genuinely think this is true for many cultures, like Italians, Europeans, Americans are like that. They're like, oh, come over, we'll get you some coffee, some pies, whatever. So my parents were like, why didn't they, why didn't they invite us to their house? Why, why did they take us to a restaurant? They paid for the food. Mm. which was obviously a polite gesture but they were so those are the things i watch my parents also like still feel feel like that, that it was unusual and i was sitting there like oh that was so much fun we got to see a new restaurant like i was so much easier to adopt to it and didn't think twice about it and then my parents and i saw them and i overheard them and i'm like oh so that that's a thing there's a difference between inviting us to a restaurant versus inviting to your home for dinner one mm. is more yeah. Wow. <laughs> Is that feeling of being uh, behind in the marathon still with you today? Yes. Yes, it is. And that's one of the things I come to understand about our relationship with ourselves. Because as you know, right, there's a part of us that wants, wants to hold on to a negative story and it will use anything. So now the story usually tries to get my attention by saying, my age, you know, you're too old to like, I started private practice and this may again, sound so privilege of me to complain about, but I started my private practice just a few years ago after I had my daughter and I find my, again, my perfectionism, like you're not doing enough show up that way. And sometimes it will still show up with the way I speak. And if I make grammatical errors, and there was a time, this was in my late 20s, I was doing my postdoctoral hours, the true story. I talked to a, call, a friend of mine, we were working together, and I asked her if I should go to speech therapy. I'm not kidding you. I asked her, I was like, should I go to speech therapy? She's like, what are you saying? I'm like, well, I have an accent. Maybe I should get rid of it, you know, so I can speak better and I can just, you know, just do it better always like tags on you. And so I always have to catch it. And that's one of the things that I talk openly about our, that we have to work on ourselves, right? We always have to sharpen our tools and we always have to be kind and compassionate and loving towards ourselves because it may, it may have played a big role when I was 15, but then again, it may have reactivated when I got into college and it got reactivated when I got a degree. And then when I became a parent, so I think the truth is this can, as you know, you know, our, our, our stories can get reactivated at any time. Um, and we have to always catch it and always use our tools against it, like self-compassion, self-love, um, you know, tolerating our journey, not comparing it to other people, because I'm sure uh, as my husband loves to say, like, you know, I can compare myself to other people and say, I'm doing great. And I can compare myself to other people and say, I'm doing behind, I'm behind. So it's always like, try not to compare yourself to other people, focus on your journey, celebrate your effort and your ambition. Cause no, I think it can always get activated. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Something, a topic you keep that we've danced around this whole time is perfectionism. And I know that's something you focused on in your clinical work because it's relevant for you and it's relevant. It's relevant for me. It's relevant for a lot of us. Could, could we start by just 
sharing? Like, what is perfectionism if you had to describe it to somebody? So the perfectionism, the I, I know this sounds obvious and simple, but it's about striving to be perfect. But what does that mean? Because people think perfect is a good thing, but it's not. Perfect means without a flaw, without an error, without a mistake. So when we live our lives with a mindset and a behavior patterns that is about striving for things to be perfect, we're talking about trying to be 100% at all times at everything you do, which is absolutely unattainable. It is unachievable. And people, again, I think there's this misconception that, oh, perfect is good. Perfect is, you know, doing your best. And it's not. Perfect is about trying to strive for perfection. That means there's no error. There's no flaw. There's no mistakes. Yeah. It's really, at least in my experience, it comes from that back end of it of removing all errors rather than the primary focus on being perfect. But that's just the it's two two sides of the same coin. Yes, yes, it is. It yeah. is, and it's also reinforced, right? I, uh, I there are a lot of occupations where you are expected to do it without a flaw. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's often celebrated or promoted, I should say, because people, you know, it's important for our sense of safety. It's important for everybody's safety that things are done perfectly. Um, and, and that's again, another way of packaging it and selling it to people as if that's a good thing for us. Mm. So how does somebody that struggles with perfectionism, how does that cause problems for them in their life? I know that seems maybe like a obvious question, but could you share a little bit about how this manifests, whether for you personally or for the clients that you work with? I love that question because, the, again, the, the joke is, as a therapist, which I'm sure you relate to, nobody knocks on our door and says, hey, I struggle with perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People often come to me because they have they can't sleep, right? The, one of the typical ones, like, I'm having a hard time sleeping, or I, I have a panic or my depression. So people often, I think, see the consequences of perfectionism. And that's why I think we talk a lot about what we see on the surface, which is anxiety, eating disorder, addiction, depression, and, and so, or sleep problems or, uh, fights with our partner, body image issues. Oh my goodness. Yes. Or complain, uh, fights with our partner Mm -hmm. and, um, or, 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 uh, you know, people coming to therapy because they are raging at their kids. So Mm -hmm. parenting issues and not being our ideal parents. And of course, those are all real problems and we should compl- like report them as problems, but that's what's, what's causing it is that perfectionist attitude underneath it. Yeah. That's what I always see. Nobody again says I have perfectionism and I didn't know my relationship with perfectionism until I read the, the you know, my, my form of Bible, Brenna Brown's <laughs> Gifts of Imperfection. I was like, oh, there's a name for what I'm struggling with. I think I'm not good enough, which is a total BS. Um, so I think that we don't know it until we are we we get to learn about. It. And I hope what these conversations helps to do for people is to understand how there is a secret, secret uh, perfectionism behind your anxiety, behind your depression, behind you raging at your kids, behind unhappy marriages. I'm not saying obviously there's one cause to all human problem and that's perfectionism. That would be too easy. Yeah. 
but it it is. I I'm I have no doubt that perfectionism is part of what we often struggling with self esteem, um, you know, self confidence. And I think if I may say this too, the reason perfectionism causes low self esteem is because when we talk about definition of perfectionism, I to me it's part of the definition to know that perfectionism is to hide our sense of inadequacy. Mm. So it again it's part of the definition to say to understand when we strive for perfectionism when we gravitate towards it or when we are trying to work towards being perfect it's because we also have these core beliefs as you know these negative core beliefs stories we tell ourselves that we are inept we are broken we are you know we don't belong here So perfectionism, by definition, is to hide these things and prove ourselves for once and for all. You know, we belong here. We are safe. We are loved. We're worthy. And yeah. I obviously am here to tell people that there are other ways to feel worthy and enough without striving for perfectionism, because perfectionism will never get you there. Yeah, and the goalpost keeps moving further out. Yes, that I, I think speaking of the marathon, that's the other thing that I often visualize about this this journey of you know perfectionism is that the finish line always <laughs> pulls away. Like, and yeah. I felt that way. I'm not kidding. The reason I I think of it like that is because when I was working towards my licensure, there's like you know four or five things you have to do, like collect your hours, pass a national exam, pass a state exam, and one more thing. And it's like I feel like every time I did one more, one big thing. I wasn't arriving at the final destination because I wasn't licensed yet. That's when I start to realize sometimes it feels like the finish line is always being pulled away from you, and you just have to keep running. You just have to keep going, and that's very exhausting and very. It 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 again causes a lot of hurt and pain. Yeah, to go back a couple steps from what we were just talking about about how the sort of outward manifestations of an issue can really be rooted in perfectionism, I think is a really important point because without peeling back those layers, sometimes we can get so narrowed in on just, you know, we just can't sleep and that's the issue. But really it could be, you know, even speaking personally, I've done a lot of work on my own form of perfectionism, but I can, you know, even with this podcast, the finality of recording something and hearing yourself and having to listen through it, It it could be so easy for me to release an episode and get narrowed in on one thing that I said wrong or saying like too many times, and then that could cause rumination and it, that can cause not being able to sleep. But you could just get so honed in on that, just not sleeping is the problem. When really, if you pull back the layers, it's coming from this perfectionism part of us. It really is, and I know that people may think, well, she already believes perfectionism is such a problem, so. Uh, People may think what I'm about to say is 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 an argument for it, but as I've done a lot of research and read a lot on perfectionism, I have listed all of the perfectionist traits. And when you look at that, I have like a I I, I was just working on it the other day, and there's like 75 items in there, 75 ways perfectionism shows up in your life. And it when you look at that list, you will see that every one of us have perfectionism. If you have doubled or triple checked your work before submitting it, that's a sign of perfectionism. You never take a sick day off. That's perfectionism. You procrastinate 
that's perfectionism because perfectionism is all the reason people don't think procrastination, indecisiveness, delaying things are not perfectionism. They think perfectionism is those, those type A people, but you, we often procrastinate because we feel so overwhelmed by the task at hand. And we also expect ourselves to do well and we don't want to fail at it. Therefore, we then push it away and don't do it um, like on time or don't do it in increments that we should be doing because we don't want to fail. And perfection is all about avoiding failure, avoiding mistakes, avoiding rejection. So people pleasing, codependency, poor boundaries, passive aggressive communication. Those are all um, are part of perfectionism. I'm not saying you have to have all of those things. I'm just trying to say how these are all linked to perfectionism. Yeah. Well, I think from my own experience in the clinical work I do is we all, this is within all of us, um, just simply based off the way the mind works. The mind works in very binary ways. So mind isn't very good at nuance and gray area. So everybody lives in the paradigm of good, bad, right, wrong, perfect, not perfect. So I think that it, we all have the potential to fall into this uh, lens of looking at ourselves in the world through. Absolutely. I think you bring up, again, an important part of like what perfectionism is about or how it shows up in your life. It's black or white thinking. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is all about black or white thinking, which then also brings up like when people ask me, like, what, are, what do I need to do to, you know, keep my perfectionism at bay or, or, or overcome it? One of the skills we have to use is, you know, flexible thinking, thinking in grays and avoiding those absolute words in our language. Should statements are also very common. And, and when we, you know, magnify the negatives, like you were mentioning that one little detail, one word that we said it the wrong way for me to, um, go to speech therapy <laughs> because yeah. I may not be sounding things correctly 24 seven. Like, obviously I did not just for the record. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I did not fall for that trap. And I had a good support system that said, you're crazy. You were wonderful. Don't do that. And that's another part of, as you know, with overcoming any challenges we're dealing with in our lives, we need a support system to lean on, to help us remember um, you know, that we, that the stories we're telling ourselves are not true. And luckily I had a good friend who said, no, you do not have to go to speech therapy. And I did not. Mm. But So here's a, uh, I think a really relevant manifestation of perfectionism that for in the beginning of the new year here, when it comes to goals and when we set goals and mess up one time and we fall into the, oh, well, I slipped one time or I didn't follow the diet or didn't exercise one day. And then that leads us to just giving up completely on something. That's, I feel like that's where people's New Year's resolutions often go wrong, right? It's the all or nothing, perfect or not perfect thinking around it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so funny with those New Year's resolutions because I think by definition, New Year's resolution is like what I hope to achieve in this year, not what I have to achieve on day two, for goodness sake. Or isn't that what the resolution was? Or at least that was my interpretation. Like, I'm like, great conversation. What is one thing I want to see in my life in this new year that I didn't get to? Because I think time is very precious. And I, I am all about like, you know, not delaying things just because I think time is very precious. And again, pandemic has taught us. That's one of the things. Time is very precious. 
So if you have the means and if you're not getting in your own way, your fear, your anxiety, your negative stories are not getting in your own way, do it. So I do think New Year's resolutions are are good, but I think when we what, when, how we ruin it for ourselves is we forget. This is what I hope to see in this year. It didn't mean day two or week two. It meant sometime in this year uh, through the trials and errors. And that's another thing. Um, sorry, I keep going back to this because I feel like the definition of perfectionism is just so uh, so many layers to it. What makes something a perfectionism is how something is done. So when people, and again, when you are looking at your own perfectionism, I, I would like to ask you to think of your expectations of yourself. And again, this is another obvious definition of perfectionism that you have high expectations of yourself and the expectations around how something should go. So let's take New Year's resolution and I'm going to take the classic one where people often want to eat healthier, right? Mm-hmm. And the story people tell or the vision they have is that I'm going to start eating healthy January 1st, and I'm going to stay like that until the end of the year, which is a very perfectionist attitude. Yeah. And imperfection says, it's going to go up and down. Let's mm-hmm. just be real. It's going to go backwards and forward and backwards and forward. Perfectionism doesn't accept that. Perfectionism thinks it only goes forward or it only goes up. It only you know goes straight and there's no regression there is no error, there is no pausing, there is no double, you know, guessing. So perfection is all about how do you expect something to look? And when you think to yourself, well, if I decided my new resolution is to eat healthy and I happen to not eat healthy on day three, then I I give up the whole resolution because I had this expectation that it was supposed to be one way. Yeah. I mean, I try to always remind myself and clients that part of making commitment to goals is the commitment to recommit when we slip because that's part of the process. Yes, that truly is one of my favorite words, recommitting, recommitting to, yes, recommitting to our values, recommitting to our goals. And we have to get comfortable with trial and error. I, mm-hmm. I just, I'm sure you, you, you know, you, you, you speak to so many people sharing the same message, but I think it's just part of life that we have to get comfortable with ups and downs you know, back and forth, stopping and going, stopping and going, and let go of this linear experience that once I start, it's only going to go forward and there's not going to be any mistakes or mishaps or challenges. Yeah. The the image I have in my head when it comes to growth or accomplishing goals is like moving from the top left to the top right of a chart, but it going up and down, like the stock market almost. And so when, <laughs> yes. So the downs are built into it so you don't have we don't have to freak out every time there's a slip down because we know that that's all part of it yes yes it also reminds me of those you know instagram memes you see where there's like twirly lines yeah. what your process looks like it's it's absolutely a roller coaster right yeah so how does perfectionism and this might just come down to semantics or kind of arbitrary boxes but how does how do you see perfectionism overlapping with obsessive compulsive disorder There are so many, that's the thing about perfectionism that it really does. It's, it's one of the ingredients to so many, uh, mental health experiences we have. Again, so many of addiction, depression, generalized anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder is, uh, feeds off of perfectionism. So 
A lot of times people with OCD, there are so many different subtypes, by the way. So it's, it's hard to answer it in a way that would relate to every single person who might be listening that has a subtype of OCD. But one thing about OCD is that people do a certain ritual because it needs to feel right. So there's that sense of like, it has to be this way and I'm going to do it just unless it feels this way. So some people with OCD may have, you know, a, a, a list making. So they make a list of everything they need to do and they have to like make sure they went through everything on the list. Um, like I had a couple people, I, I, I do work with OCD and a couple people have shared with me how they might have like 10 therapists with OCD specialists that they, 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 they found and they have to make sure they go through everything on the list. They would not stop on the third name because they happen to have a good connection and it seems like the right person, right, you know, session fees, the right location. They think I have to go through everything on that list before I make my decision. So there's mm-hmm. this sense of like, it, it's all or nothing. I can just stop by the third thing on the list or I can't forget to put something on the list. So there is that sense of perfectionism in everything they do and everything they es- expect of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It- there's like, it seems like there's an overlap between what the subtype of what we call just right OCD and perfectionism, Mm -hmm. where we're seeking a certain experience or feeling of something being just right or perfect. And then behaviors either overtly or covertly that go into getting that. But it seems very similar to what we call perfectionism. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I think so many, like I'm, I'm imagining like so many different layers right now, because we know that OCD is all about seeking certainty and wanting guarantee that what you touch is clean and how you're feeling about your relationship is, is the way you want it to. And, um, so obviously in the essence of OCD is all about seeking certainty and perfectionism gives us a sense of certainty Mm. because if it's just perfect, then it is certain and it is safe. It won't harm me, whether it is, again, something that you think is contaminated or harm you in a sense that, you know, um, you're not going to, you know, run over somebody if you have harm OCD. So perfectionism, which again goes back to the definition, why do people strive for perfectionism? Because it makes them feel secure. Yeah. That's what perfectionism does. It makes me think that if I just do this podcast perfectly, I will not embarrass myself. If I just do this perfection uh, podcast perfectly, then I will prove people that I am intelligent and I am educated and therefore I will feel secure and safe. And as you know, with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's one of our basic needs. We cannot not feel safe and secure. So I think OCD and perfectionism, uh, I mean, perfectionism is part of that OCD um, profile and, and part of recovering from OCD and may I say, you know, recovering from addiction and depression and eating disorder and many other things that I might not think of right now does must include learning how to challenge perfectionism. Mm. Something else that I've heard you talk about is imposter syndrome, uh, which I think that's another topic that a lot of people can relate to. Could you share a little bit about what that is? I love to, and it's, it's such a related topic to perfectionism because imposter syndrome is this feeling that we are fraud, that we are fraudulent, um, and that we're going to get, we're going to get caught any minute. Um, common themes with when you struggle with imposter syndrome is that, you know, I got lucky. 
anybody could do it. And so I think where perfectionism uses your imposter syndrome to get your attention is because again, imposter syndrome, when you hear these thoughts, I think it's very quick to notice that it's because the person doesn't feel they are smart enough. They don't feel um, they, uh, they are talented enough, whatever that they, they feel imposter syndrome about, they just don't feel they're talented and they deserve to be there. So the perfectionism say, Oh, so if you're feeling like you don't belong here, well, maybe you should try to do things perfectly the next time. Maybe that will help you feel better. Mm. So you try to do the, you know, any work you're doing better than next time. But obviously it's just a, it's a temporary fix. It's mm. a, quick fix. It's a band-aid to the problem and it never really solves what's really the core issue here, which is our relationship with ourselves and our negative thoughts about ourselves. Perfectionism is just a illusion that we can fix that. Mm. Yeah. So it's imposter syndrome is just one manifestation of this process of feeling inadequate and having certain stories about ourselves centered around inadequacy and trying to compensate for that and with it behaviors. Is. It is. Yeah. Interesting. I know that you're, you've created a course on perfectionism. Could you talk a little bit about that? I did. Uh, and it's something that people can find on my website. So I developed a, a course on perfectionism and what I've done is to make it, um, uh, easier to kind of process. I've broken down to three parts so people can sign up for each of these mini courses, the first one is on understanding what perfectionism is. And then the part two will focus on our emotional well-being. So it, that will dive in more into how uh, perfectionism comes up with anxiety, depression. So all of this emotional distress and behavior patterns and burnout and exhaustion. And then the third part, part three is about relationships. So there I focus more on the codependency, boundaries, communication problems, and I've also realized when I break it down to these three parts, people can maybe sign up for the specific part that may resonate with them. For example, if someone says, well, I know enough about my perfectionism, but I really want to understand how it's showing up in my couple's relationship, my social relationship, my work relationship, then they can dive right into part three, or they can take all, all three of them. Oh, great. Well, I'll share the links for that in the show notes. You're so wonderful. could we dive a little bit more into that last part around relationships? Because, yes. uh, you know, the way that we relate to ourselves, just it, especially if we're not aware of it and, and are intentional with not having it impact other people, it's just going to bleed out into the relationships that we have in our lives, probably more so the closer people are to you. Yes. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How does perfectionism show up in our relationships in unhelpful ways? Definitely. And Again, I'm going back to definition one last time yeah. because I want to talk about, and hopefully I'm not going to butcher the name of the <laughs> psychologist, but I do want to give ref, uh, you know, credit where it's due. And um, Paul Hewitt and uh, Dr. Flett, they have done a, what's called a multidimensional um, theory of perfectionism. And they believe that there is something called self-oriented perfectionism where all your perfectionist expectations are directed towards yourself. And then there's a second type, they called it other-oriented perfectionism, where all your perfectionism, like wanting things to be perfect, pretty much, just to keep it short, directed towards other people. Mm. So I think typically, I at least, 
I would say maybe I'm like 70, 30. I'm mostly, again, I'm one of like, I'm my worst enemy. So a lot of my perfectionism has been in the past directed towards myself, but I know there have been so many situations I directed towards other people. So it's up to you to decide, are you 50, 50, but other oriented perfectionism where you expect other people to be perfect. Mm, you expect- like, a, like a parent who wants their kid to look perfectly at school and their grades to and their accomplishments to be the highest degree. Oh, yes. Yes, you nailed it. It's it's about wanting your children to be perfect. It's wanting your company, your coworkers, or people Mm -hmm. you're working with, people you're working for you to be perfect. Mm. And obviously, couples relationship, right? We want our partner to be perfect. We want our friends to be perfect. So anybody that's in your life that, you, you know, you spend most of your time with or they're a meaningful part of your life, you have to really be mindful of how much your perfectionist expectations are directed towards them, like measurement, like that perfectionist measurement. And how do you respond to mistakes and flaws of other people? How, how quickly do you react when people are late in their deadlines and how forgiving you are? And I want to be careful about this because it doesn't mean that you, you have to forgive everybody at all the time in order to, you know, let go of perfectionism. It's about this idea that how, you know, have you let a relationship go because of one imperfection? You know, yeah. have you let go of a friendship because of one mistake they made? That's, I think, the perfectionism that's all or nothing. Like, you never do wrong by me. And one time you do something wrong by me, I'm not going to give you a chance to talk this through and obviously decide for myself if this is something I can move, move forward with or not. If you can't even have that conversation and you let that relationship go, we see perfectionism really getting in the way from long-term relationships. Mm. And the other thing about perfectionism and relationship is codependency and people-pleasing, which is incredibly, incredibly common. When we, again, going back to the relationship we have with ourselves, when we feel like we are not good enough, we are unlovable, we then... As you know, and I I think this is going to sound very obvious to people, when we feel that sense of unworthiness, then we are afraid of disappointing people because we think we, 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 they probably already are disappointed with us. We fear rejection. We fear letting people down. We fear that if I just make one mistake, they're going to think I'm a piece of shit and they're going to let, they're going to let me go, whether it's my boss or my friend. Like people do like fear being dumped by their friend, their partners, and being let go by their bosses because they're afraid, because they believe they are not worthy to be there, to have that relationship. So there's a lot of that people-pleasing, avoiding confrontation, Mm -hmm. um, setting boundaries. So obviously the classic, you know, saying yes when you should be saying no is very common with people who have very perfectionist tendencies. Mm -hmm. So have you seen with clients or is what the research is suggesting that there are people that will primarily just have perfectionism that's focused on other people and they don't relate to themselves in that same way? No, I, I'm, unfortunately I have not seen any specific, you know, research on terms of like, you know, um, how, how often people are more self-oriented than other oriented I do think that it might be for some people 50-50. And again, that's been my clinical mm. clinical observation. Like people 
have said to me, well, I am just as judgmental of other people as I am of myself. So yeah. I know that sometimes it could be 50-50. My experience is that I am more judgmental. I have been more judgmental of myself than other people. So my perfections was often directed at me than yeah. other people. But again, I do know that there there is about, you know, a quarter of my perfectionism that was definitely uh, placed on other people and wanting everywhere I work to be, you know, well-organized and high quality or my friends and my relationships. So I know that uh, it, it other, I, I, I just don't think it's one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everything we're describing about how this impacts relationships can, sounds like there's a big overlap with that subtype of relationship OCD of wanting our partners to be perfect or having a certain uh, aspect of their personality of their body that you can't let go of that isn't perfect. So there's a big overlap in that Venn diagram. There really, really is. And I think what is true is OCD is about seeking certainty. Am I in the right relationship? Is this the one for me or do I, is sexual orientation OCD is a very common one. You know, am I who I think I am? Am I in, you know, am I a member of that uh, category as I thought I was, and we want certainty. And that's why we look for perfectionism because one, if something is hundred percent, that's the answer, right? Mm -hmm. So which perfectionism is wanting hundred percent, 99 out of 100 is not like, that's not good for the perfectionist mind. So no wonder OCD and perfectionism get along really well because perfectionism is like, buddy, I'll get you the hundred percent you need to feel secure in your relationship. Just follow me. And OCD yes. is like, okay, I follow you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things I've ever done for myself is just really deep down in my bones, give myself permission to just let 80% is okay. 80% certainty, 80% perfection, whatever it is, just release that pressure valve and really live it too. That's gold. That's yeah. gold. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, it's been so great talking to you. Was there anything that we missed or anything else you'd want to share? Oh, no, I, I hope that this was really helpful for everyone. Thank you so much for the conversation. I've, yeah. I found it therapeutic myself, so it was a wonderful <laughs> conversation. Thank you so much for having me here. And the website, in case people are interested in taking more, learning more about their perfectionism, is embracingyourtherapy.com. So if they would like to check it out, everything about the course is there, and I would, yeah. I would love to love the love to share more with people. And thank you so much for having me here. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad we were connected. And you also have a great Instagram page that I'll share in the show notes. And you post some wonderful content. So I'll make sure oh, people you. are connected to that too. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Menage, for being here. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time. Peace. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my grief. I know 
never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath And try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath And try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath And try to open my soul 